Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. On Common to People this week, will Richie Sunak's rescue package work? We can all eat out to help out. Labour's wealth tax confusion. We certainly support the principle that those with the broadest shoulders should uh, bear the greatest burden. And what is Boris Johnson up to? And the audacity to blame care workers who have lost lives, who have sacrificed so much, is shocking. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul War. Hi Arj. Hey Paul, uh, we've got Rachel Wearmouth. Hiya. Hi Rachel and we've got the Labour peer and Gordon Brown's former advisor Stuart Wood. Hello Arj. Hi Stuart, welcome back. How's Thank lo- you very much. How's lockdown, which is sort of semi-over, been for you? Uh, yeah, a bit of an ordeal but um, it's been it's been okay. Lots of cooking and parenting and Working from home, wearing a tie and shirt from the waist up, but pair of skanky shorts underneath that no one sees, which I'm sure everyone's been doing. Yeah, if you want to keep it that way, we're on a video call. <laughs> that's that would be a Right, that's a threat. When I'm losing the argument, I know what to do now. <laughs> well, Rishi Sunak has set out his long-awaited coronavirus mini-budget with £30 billion in extra spending to try and save jobs from the impending recession. The Chancellor introduced some radical proposals, including a £1,000 employer's bonus for furloughed workers taken back on and an eat-out-to-help-out discount voucher to encourage people to dine out between Monday and Wednesday in August. There was also a big VAT cut for hospitality and tourism and a stamp duty holiday until April next year. Let's hear the Chancellor. We have taken decisive action to protect our economy, but people are anxious about losing their job about unemployment rising. We're not just going to accept this. People need to know we will do all we can to give everyone the opportunity of good and secure work. People need to know that although hardship lies ahead, no one will be left without hope. So today we act with a plan for jobs. Paul, some radical proposals again, but are they going to work? There have been some, some concerns raised this morning. Yeah, well, um, of course, the truly radical thing to have done would have been to kept uh, alive the furlough scheme, but just for targeted bits of, of um, British industry, for example, hospitality or the creative industries. You could have done that. That would have been genuinely radical, I suspect, because it, it may well have reassured people, even if it was rolled over for an extra two months or something, uh, or if it was time limited to when the disease uh, was virtually all wiped out or say when test and trace was fully, fully operational. If it was linked in some way to the health consequences, that would have been properly radical, I think. But um, as it happens, what you got was 
I mean, it's a bit unfair to call them gimmicks, but you know, fifty um, percent off meals in August. Um, yeah, I can see when we had the briefing with the Treasury, you and I. You know, I could see the logic. Um, it, it it may well work. It might well protect some jobs. Similarly, the stamp duty thing might protect some jobs in the sense that a spin off of the housing market doesn't just affect the people who own those those homes. It affects the other people that are helping supply those home moves. Um, the 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 one that is tricky is this thousand quid bonus, the retention bonus, because, you know, in the real world, um, if you're a business, really what you're trying to do is survive. Are you really going to think a thousand quid is a lot of money? Are you going to take that bribe to create a new job or to help a young person? A thousand quid when you're, you're hemorrhaging cash? I'm not sure that's going to work. I mean, it's well intentioned, but I'm not sure. It'd be interesting to see how many companies take it up. Um, the reaction doesn't seem that great so far. Stuart, I just wanted to ask, um, you spent a lot of time in the Treasury as an economic advisor. Um, what did you make of this statement? And, and also, Rishi seemed to have nicked one of some Gordon Brown policies as well. Um, yeah, well, I, I thought, it, like Paul, I thought, I think it's a massive gamble because I think the gamble underneath what he's doing is that... Uh, that the guns of the Treasury can be fired on short-term stimulus, in particular on retail and high streets, which is where the overwhelming emphasis of this stuff was yesterday, in particular for those on lower wages not to get not to get fired. Um, but it seems it's part of a plan, which is that it, that's that's all we'll need. I mean, I don't think there's complacency, but I definitely think there's a, a gamble that this short-term stimulus is what is the most important action that the government can take. And I, I personally think the scale of what we're facing is on a different planet to the one that was revealed uh, as the sort of working assumption behind what happened yesterday. And as Paul said, the other, th the other thing going on here is, I mean, a few people have said this, but I think it's really fundamentally true. The reason that people are not going out and spending money is not because they think that the 10% discounts on Monday to Wednesday are going to be helpful. It's because... They are worried about sickness and illness and public health. And there's very little the Treasury can do about that. So the most important economic policy at the moment is actually public health policy. Getting a, a really comprehensive track and trace system in place, showing sharp responses to local flare ups, you know, public demonstrations that the public health measures are working rapid, comprehensive, that this system for the next year or so can be deployed wherever it may be needed in Western Supermare, in Scotland, wherever it might be, that weirdly is the most important economic policy if you care about, about confidence. So I think it's a gamble in terms of the time frame and the scale. And I think it's also slightly really beside the point that the main driver of economic policy at the moment is health. And I think, I think that's going to be a problem for them. I think the third thing is, this is a classic case of over-promising and under-delivering when every politician uses the maxim that you should under-promise and over-deliver. Last week, we had New Deal galore, right? Briefings about Roosevelt and New Deal. This week, we had vouchers for Monday to Wednesday night if you want to spend 10 quid in the, on pizzas. Now, that isn't the only thing because the, the job retention scheme is, is big. Although, as Paul says, I think it's more about the values and the sort of symbolism, really, than the actual magnitude of the effect because I suspect it won't be at the margin the thing that makes companies retain thousands and thousands of workers. But, you know, I, I do think there's a problem here that the scale of what was promised or suggested and the scale of response are really, really different. And that, that's almost baking in the disappointment of the reaction, I think, to the announcement. Uh, Rachel, you wanted to come in a second ago. 
No, I was just going to say, it's it, uh, just kind of echoing a little bit about what Paul and Stuart both said, that it doesn't seem particularly targeted. What I've heard is sort of a lot of smaller and medium businesses just won't make it through these few months because the, the thousand quid's not a lot of money to them, really, especially when you factor in, um, I think the IFS said this this morning, when you factor in that workers are not going to be as productive because of social distancing. So it's not actually a lot of money in it. And if you're a small or medium business and you've got just a few months to to get by, you might not have the cash flow. So it's kind of not really aimed at them. And there's also some emissions like why isn't it tar- why isn't the meal voucher necessarily targeting like takeaways as well? You know, especially when we've just been encouraging everybody to eat at takeaways rather than restaurants because of the health crisis. Yeah. I think in terms of the scale of it, I mean, what's interesting is there's some a sort of symmetry with the budget back in March. Now, the budget was before the big crisis and it had 30 billion quid um, as a sort of, you know, that was its corona spending, 30 billion quid. Since then, he realised he had to do big bazooka to do furlough, had to do spend, you know, many, many tens of billions, more than 200 billion in total. Now he's gone back to 30 billion. It's like we started off with that. We've had a big it's almost like the curve is flattening the curve of spending. Um, and the curious thing is, I think, is, as, as Stuart was saying, you know, the scale of this is what's really, really quite frightening. Um, one thing I think that is interesting, actually, is that I think maybe for the first time ever, because jobs in journalism are threatened by this crisis, that maybe the media coverage of it will be a bit different from what it was in the early 80s when there was mass unemployment or in the 90s when there was mass unemployment. Maybe, because it's affecting journalists directly, maybe the, the message will get through. But having said that, you know, today we've seen Boots, big job losses. John Lewis, big job losses. That's the day after the budget for jobs. So... It, that puts into perspective really what's going on here. And there's bigger forces at play and it needs probably as big a response as that furlough announcement. And the difficulty is just, as I said earlier, you know, what's he going to do in terms of connecting the furlough uh, unwinding in October with which seems an arbitrary date with with actual public health and where we are with public health. The two seem to be completely divorced. I'm really surprised by that. Um, he had quite a glib line yesterday, which was, you know, if I ended it in October, my critics would say do it till November. If I did it in November, they'd do it in December. That was really quite glib, I think, for those, you know, large numbers of people who are actually on furlough and who think they're, they're literally on death row as far as their jobs are concerned. Um, and it, and again, this morning on the radio, he was talking about people, quote, sitting at home on furlough. They're sitting at home actually really worried that they're going to lose their livelihood. Yeah, yeah and, and, strange, and strangely, it was kind of a big signal that they're not envisaging another national lockdown, but also there was nothing for towns or cities that are going to be locally locked down like Leicester. Um, but anyway, Sunak has also acknowledged that there's going to be quite a lot of dead, what's called dead weight spending in this. So money that's going to employers, for example, that will bring would have brought those furloughed workers back on anyway. Um, Stuart, is that a good thing to be doing? Do you kind of have to do that in a crisis? Yeah, in I think group, that, it's, that, that's, that's a, you're sounding Arj, like a Treasury official there. And that's, that's <laughs> a, and that's a reasonable concern to have. But it's a lower order. You know, it's a sort of. It's Norwich City compared to Liverpool in the ranking of... Uh, I have to get that in because I'm a Liverpool fan. So Don't tell Matthew McGregor. <laughs> Indeed. But it's really it's really a lower order concern at the moment, I think. There's got to be deadweight spending in the scale of recovery. It's, it's the scale, really, 
that's the challenge. And look, I, I can tell from this announcement what's going on in the Treasury, right? As someone who worked there for six years, still got very good friends who, who work there. It's classic Treasury, this, because they, they to be fair, the Treasury and, and, and Rishi Sunak did an extraordinary short-term response to the crisis when it hit. And everyone should give credit, I think, to them for that. The scale of, of the keeping people's heads above water response, as it were, was huge. And yesterday, you know, they were telling you guys, journalists, that, you know, the, the, if you add up everything we've done, it'll be something like 190 billion if you add up the whole thing. Mm. Right? But the problem is that that was life support money. That is not stimulus and recovery money. Right. And I think the Treasury, weirdly, having been incredibly fleet of foot and breaking its normal taboos you know you could feel the coronaries ripping across rippling across the treasury at the amount of support they gave from march onwards but now they seem to be going into a much more traditional treasury mode when it comes to the stimulus part they don't really the treasury doesn't really believe that massive government spending on fdr style you know infrastructure stuff is really gonna make the difference certainly not in the time frame they're deep skeptics about shovel ready projects nothing is really shovel ready it takes mm. years for anything to come on board they're really skeptical about procurement capacity inside government, the ability of government to actually start new projects, make them efficient, make them work quickly. You know, with good reason, they're very skeptical about all that. So they don't believe that a massively adventurous government in the spending camp is going to be the thing that makes a difference to the economy. They believe that government is there to stop markets when they fail, right? And so I think the, the Treasury is now shifting Back to, I mean, it's still incredibly exposed in terms of its spending compared to a year ago, but you're starting to see the Treasury get much more into a protecting public finances mode. Yes, short term spending for the high street, but very strong signals will be going back towards a more responsible fiscal kind of approach to, to running the country at the end of the year. And I think that is a source of huge tension within the government and between the government and the country from now on. Do you think do you think sort of there could be more rigor? Do you think that the government should be asking for businesses to commit to more for the money that the Treasury's given out, Stuart? Yeah, I do actually. I think I think there's scope for um I mean other countries easy to go to Germany, of course, which is so different in so many ways, right? But a lot of a lot of European countries have these things well, Germany calls it the social plan, which is that if if companies are gonna lay off large numbers of people they have to make provision negotiated with their workforce for reskilling and retraining in order to allow that mass, mass layoff to happen. So there's all sorts of things you can do to actually incentivize companies either to think twice about laying people off or to force them to contribute to the reskilling of people that, that, that will be laid off before doing it. Here, the eggs are all going in the basket of stopping companies from laying off people, particularly lower wage people, right? There's very little yesterday for what happens if you do become unemployed. Of course, you know, they're, they're increasing hugely the number of people who are going to work in, in job centres, right? But but it, it's quite, there's a lot of tumbleweed around, around for people who actually have found themselves out of a job. So far, there's not much by way of public projects or, you know, if we're going to be Roosevelt-y about it, Roosevelt was all about that. There's not much here, and I think they still feel maybe they maybe they have optimism about the, the some of the green shoots of recovery data. I don't know what it what 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 the reason might be, but they still feel that they can stop that mass transfer of people into unemployment. It seems to me um, that that that's a gamble, a massive massive gamble. Yeah. But do, you, do you also think maybe Stuart that um, there's something structural going on, just as in. And what was interesting yesterday was that Sunak 
almost implied, look, we're we're not Thatcherites. We're not relaxed about unemployment. That that was the sort of that was the narrative pitch. But actually, behind it, is there much difference between what he did yesterday or the lack of real help for retail, for example? I mean, there was help for for pubs and restaurants, but there was nothing for high street retailers like shops at all. Is, is there something going on where they think structurally? Look, a lot of these, a lot of shopping's moving online. A lot of stuff is happening, and there's nothing we can do about it. And because there's nothing we can do about it, just as in the early '80s, they thought Thatcherism thought structurally we're losing all these heavy jobs to the Far East. There's nothing we can do about it, um, uh, and the mines are going to close. There's nothing really we can do about that. Do you think that there's something similar going on here, where they're they're not quite telling us the full story about what? What they think I, I do. I think you put your finger on something important. And I, I don't mean when I agree with you to say that the government is callous and I'm not trying to invoke that image of the, the Thatcherite sort of, uh, you know, callousness towards those who are, who are vulnerable and make men unemployed. But I do think I think inside the Treasury, there is a view that what this crisis has done has sort of accelerated a, a, a shift within our economy that was perhaps going to take 10 years. And it's now taking 10 weeks or 10 months rather than 10 years. And they don't want to stand in the way of that. And I think rhetorically, what's quite interesting is when Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak talk about the future, they don't really believe in the state becoming a massive employer of people for the foreseeable future, right? That the private sector's got to do the employing. That's the only employment that really counts for them. And as you say, Paul, secondly, they also believe that there are these interesting shifts going on technologically and uh, you know, online, which have been accelerated. They don't want to stand in the way of that. I think that's absolutely right. But that puts them in a slight quandary about what the story is for someone who is newly unemployed in three weeks. And what, what, what does the government do? I, I, I'm sure you're going to get, I mean, we're going to have more in the autumn state, but my, my sense is intellectually they're going to go towards giving people the wherewithal to get reskilled and retrained, you know, something like a you know, retraining credit or whatever it might be. But it will be very much aiding the market rather than stepping in and where, where the the market isn't isn't doing employing the state doing it instead I don't, I don't see them doing that that's where the fdr analogy by the way just falls to the ground because that was a key plank of what the new deal was about you know recruit people into these massive agencies because the market just isn't an ability to do it the gamble here is that they really believe that employers will be in the business of hiring maybe different kinds of employers to the past and it's just a matter of the transition that the state needs to be stepping in for yeah, interesting stuff. We should move on, though. Uh, Sunak's summer economic update was also notable as Annalise Dodd's first big Commons moment since being promoted to shadow Chancellor by Keir Starmer. Dodd said the Chancellor's plans relied on confidence in the public health measures taken by the government, as we've just mentioned, including the flawed test and trace scheme. It was a solid performance, but came after a week in which Labour found itself on the back foot over whether it wants to introduce a wealth tax. Let's hear Dodd's on the eating out vouchers, first of all. What is really needed is more of a focus on why people might be nervous to go out to restaurants, pubs, etc. in the first place. You know, I said to the Chancellor yesterday, particularly around Test Track and Isolate, I know that I've mentioned it before, but that system isn't yet working to the extent that it is in other countries. Once we get it working, I think that will really drive up people's confidence because they'll know exactly where infections are, you know, it will mean that people will feel much happier about going into different business premises. That's what's really needed, not just incentives, confidence in the first place. Paul, this was a big test for Annalise Dodds and Labour this week. Uh, how have they done? Well, I actually think that um, 
in the chamber, she did a pretty good job, actually. I think she made a coherent case for putting at the heart of uh, Labour's constructive opposition this whole idea of of connecting wealth and health and, and saying that actually you've got to get the health bit, the public health bit right. Um, she made some good points about, um, you know, where, for example, on Test and Trace, and we've written about this quite a lot, uh, where is your where's your support for those people who are forced to self-isolate but can't afford to? You know, that's a key plank in the, the health policy. I was surprised. If I was soon, I would have I would have used yesterday to do something on that. I mean, it's, it's not hard. Um, it's not a lot of money if you're talking about individual local areas. There's numbers of people who are self-isolating aren't huge. Why not just say, look, we're going to, uh, we're going to double statutory sick pay for those people, um, or we'll have a special new rate called self-isolation pay. You know, you, you could, there's things they could have done, but they didn't do it. Um, and so I thought she was right to do that. But the, the big problem they had was was at the weekend and from Friday onwards was when Annalise Dodd's debut in her first big speech she was asked some questions about a wealth tax and seemed to think that actually, yeah, a wealth tax was a runner. And then we got a real sort of, um, not flip-flopping as such, but a sort of obfuscation as the days went on. And Starmer, curiously, um, on Monday, seemed to say, yeah, well, uh, she's right, we're looking at that. And I, I then investigated this, did a big thing on, on, Tuesday, on Monday night, saying, actually, no, there's no way Labour is going to go down the wealth tax route. It's not proposing that. Um, and there was a real, within the 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 leadership there was a real worry that the Tories were hammering them over this wealth tax thing and you saw the PM do it in PMQs um, the Tories have certainly not forgotten those words on a wealth tax they're going to keep hammering them away um, and I thought that was quite a test for them and it's interesting it, maybe Stuart knows more about this than I do but I get the feeling that Starmer is one of those Labour leaders who hasn't really ever taken much interest in economics um, you know, he, I don't. I couldn't tell you what Starmer's view is about high, high or low taxation. All we know from the leadership is that he was very, very cautious about saying, "Look, I'm not going to com commit myself to a certain tax rate, um, uh, um, 45p or 50p in the pound. I'm not going to talk about that." That seemed quite sensible, and yet he allowed the whole wealth tax thing to, and Dodds to to take off. Yeah, Labour have even come come around and said we we, we don't want to see tax rises at all now. Um, Stuart, first of all, um, what did you make of the kind of handling of this wealth tax issue? And secondly, do you think Labour should be looking at a wealth tax? I mean, I'm a, I, I think a wealth tax has to happen personally. I think it's, I mean, it's something that when I worked for Ed Miliband, we, we looked at it's the, the, the economic, and strangely, the Treasury is a, is a big fan of the idea of wealth tax, of the idea <laughs> of the taxing, taxing land and housing, yeah. two factors of production, as an economist would call it, that are totally undertaxed at the moment. Yeah. So, Purely from an efficiency point of view, there's a case for it. Uh, I, look, I think we're in a world where we know that down the line there's going to have to be tax rises. There's no way that we can afford this extraordinary amount of public expenditure and not support it with tax rises down the line. Who knows when it will be, but it has to happen. The political danger is you go straight to it when actually the short-term economic policy uh, imperative is that you, you, want, you need to borrow more and you need to make the space for more borrowing and greater debt to be tolerable and that's really if Labour made a mistake this week I think it was letting the tax question get in front of that question where you really got to fight for the for, for the space for that to happen um, so I think Labour, Labour's challenge at the moment is 
I, I think that the, the key argument is uh, two key arguments. One Annalise made very well yesterday in the chamber, which is that health rather than economics is the key problem at the moment. And Paul's completely right. There's, there's a large number of people who either are in the middle of lockdowns or who face the worry about being in a lockdown in the future, who will worry about interruptions to their earnings. And it's not clear that there's any spe special support for those people. That could become a bigger and bigger problem, I think, depending on how many lockdowns we see. So Annalise did that. But the, the real problem that Labour has is uh, how do you argue that the scale of response is not adequate on the part of the government without fleshing out what you do by way of increasing spending? You've got to put some flesh on the bones. And at the moment, if you hear Ed Miliband and Annalise sometimes talking about this, they talk about green investment, and that's clearly one go-to go-to area. But you're going to have to—they're going to have to have when they do interviews on TV or a radio or wherever with you guys. They're going to have to have two or three go-to substantial multi-billion-pound things, which testify to the fact that they're on a different scale of response to the government, but also are, if not costed, at least you know you're prepared to take the amount of borrowing that it will require in order to make it happen. That is a difficult place for Labour to be, given our last 10 years of history. I think Keir is probably banking, although Paul's right, he's not an economist, and I don't really know myself what his economic go-to policies and instincts are. But I think he, he and the team are probably banking on the fact that the public opinion is shifting massively. When you have you know, Ian Duncan Smith saying, this is not the time to worry about the public finances. My goodness, <laughs> the centre of gravity really has shifted. And Labour is probably betting a lot that the public tolerance for talking about more spending and ultimately different kinds of taxes is going to be much higher than it was even six months ago. I think, I think there's a, a few things going on here when it comes to Labour. I think that they don't want to commit to any kind of long-term policy until uh, for, they want to leave it as long as possible. You know, the next election's a long way off. And I think they're very, very worried about getting boxed in. And they just do not want to be to be seen in one space when there's such a long way to go. They don't want to be seen as anti-business because they obviously need people to fund their election campaigns next in, in the future. And I think, I, think, I think some of it as well is about um, sort of speaking to their own supporters um, and they want to make sure that people within the Labour Party start to see themselves differently as not just a pressure group that seeks to influence the government by setting out a different policy. They want to talk about competence, competence, competence and get Labour members to see themselves as, you know, supporting an alternative government and not just getting the, the current government to shift the agenda. I think the interesting thing is they're slightly missing a trick, though, because... Um, I, I totally get why they were terrified of the headlines about a wealth tax. But um, and Stuart might know more about this, but I, I got the feeling that actually one reason for having a wealth tax is that they could have then got off the hook of trying to tax people who are earning 80,000 who think oh. that they're not really rich. So they could have got off that whole problem from the last election where you've got head teachers you've got professionals in the public sector and, and some others saying actually I'm not rich why, why are you going to hit me yeah I accept someone over 225 grand they're rich um, and if you have a wealth tax maybe you could make up the loss of income um, by saying actually yeah that's it should be assets that are taxed and that really is the one percent you know if you talk about and, and if you devise a wealth tax I think you can do it where you strip out um, the, the value of your home and you strip out the value of your pension, but other assets, then then you really are targeting it. And, and the polls show that that can be phenomenally 
popular. And if you're going to choose one thing, as, as Stuart's right, I think you need to narrow your focus. If you choose one thing and, and you say, well, let's look at this one idea, um, then maybe Labour could project themselves as, as a low tax party, cutting taxes for the lower paid and middle income, um, while whacking them up on on the one percent. I mean, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I mean, to, to what extent was it really genuinely considered under Ed um, Stewart the wealth tax idea? Yeah, it was. It was. It was seriously considered. Um, we felt at the end that the, the we had this. Remember the mansion tax proposal we went to the election with, and that was sort of our proxy for a wealth tax. And we felt that anything more than that would be too much. But the, the economic logic of a wealth. I mean, the, constructing it is really difficult. But the economic logic of it is, is pretty high. But you're totally right. There's a jujitsu move to be done here, right, which is you, you need to tax income less and you need to tax wealth and assets more. And you can do a version of that, which I think has quite strong popular support, just as you could have, a, by the way, a support for getting rid of a stupid tax like stamp duty, which is a completely insane tax. Mm. It, but you, you then introduce a, a tax on transfers of assets through lifetime as well as in death. And then you move into funding social care in a different way. These things, though, require a lot of preparation. It's just too soon, mm. given the, 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 the fact that the new shadow cabinet's only been there for three or four months and the fact that COVID is taking up 99% of their time. It's too soon to have properly fleshed out proposals. If, if Labour was guilty of any, I mean, I'm quite glad that wealth tax was floated, by the way, even though it caused them some trouble in the short term, because it has to be out there on the agenda, in my view. But the, the lesson of this is, you spend a long time preparing these things. And when you're ready to go, you have tedious documents galore that you can bombard and you get nerds like me to go out and do policy seminars on them. You've got to do the really hard, you know, digging in terms of preparing the way with detailed proposals and consultation before you go live. That's if you're going to do anything on tax, you have to do that. Yeah. What Gordon Brown did back in 2003 with national insurance increases, you know, you, you spend a year basically doing the really hard work and then you suddenly launch it on the world. That's the way to do it, it seems to me. Um, but Stuart, you talked about Labour needing kind of three big ticket ideas they can go on to broadcast shows with. Do you think they're being a bit overly cautious at the moment then? Yeah, I do. I do. I think I think, I think. think um, what Rachel said is exactly right. I think the, one of the revealed preferences of Keir's leadership is you, you let the government make the running in terms of proposals and then respond to them. You know, this isn't the moment he feels, whether he's right or wrong, people have different views on he doesn't feel like this is the moment to say, here's an alternative way that we should be handling everything. Um, and partly that's just common sense because, you know, we're a long, long way from an election. The determinants of who wins the next election are in front of us, not behind us. There's a long way to go yet. And um, I think he probably feels, you know, there's a long time to be worrying about that stuff. This isn't the right time. This is the time to hold the government to account, which, by the way, it turns out he's really good at in the weekly jousts of PMQ. So he's playing to his strengths. So this was a sort of I hope I hope that they don't learn the lesson of this, that you should be unambitious in your economic policy. But I hope they do learn the lesson of this, that you have to do the hard work secretly and privately before you launch anything. Yeah. Well, sp speaking of PMQs, Boris Johnson found himself at the centre of controversy again this week after suggesting care home workers were responsible for the spread of coronavirus. Uh, unsurprisingly, the prime minister has since repeatedly refused to apologise could he have his eyes on a future inquiry? In any case, it was confirmed this week that one of the key figures in any future probe, Sir Mark Sedwill, will get a huge £250,000 payoff after quitting his roles as Cabinet Secretary and National Security Advisor as part of the PM's plans to overhaul Whitehall. 
Uh, but let's just hear Johnson clashing with Starmer on care homes at PMQs. On Monday, when asked why care home deaths had been so high, the Prime Minister said, and I quote, too many care homes didn't really follow the procedures in the way that they could have. That's caused huge offence to frontline care workers. It's now been 48 hours. Will the Prime Minister apologise to care workers? I'm grateful to the Right Honourable Gentleman. And the last thing I want to do is to uh, blame care workers for what has happened or for any of them uh, to think that I was blaming them because they worked hard, uh, incredibly hard throughout this crisis, looking after some of the most vulnerable people in our country and doing an outstanding job. And as he knows, tragically, uh, 257 of them have, have lost their lives. And when it comes to uh, taking blame, I take full responsibility uh, for what has happened. But the one thing that nobody knew early on during this pandemic was that the virus was being passed asymptomatically from person to person in the way that it is. And that's why the guidance and the uh, procedures changed. And it's thanks to the hard work of care workers that we've now got uh, incidents down in our care homes, uh, outbreaks down in our care homes to the lowest level since the crisis began. That's thanks uh, to our care workers. And I pay tribute to them. Uh, Paul, good week for Rishi Sunak, but a bad one for Boris Johnson, would you say? Well, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm increasingly wary of the sort of Sunak hype, to be honest. Um, yeah, he, he burst onto the stage um, earlier this year, you know, fresh face. He got the tone right. Um, he certainly did the right things, as Stuart said, with a big bazooka, thanks to a lot of Treasury expertise on furlough. But, you know, you get tested really when times are tough. It's easy to get praise when you're dishing out loads of dosh. And his judgments now are going to be called into question. I think um, what he said to the 1922 last night was interesting. He, he basically said, look, I'm, I'm kind of on your side. I'm a libertarian at heart. Um, but, you know, this has been forced on me. I've been on a journey. I've been forced into this state intervention. Um, and I still don't quite know what Sunakism is. We don't know really what Johnsonism is. Well, we've got a vague idea of what it is, um, however you dress it up. But Sunakism, I'm not sure. Um, Rishinomics, what, what are they? Uh, we'll find out properly in, in autumn um, when he's got his, his proper... Um, fiscal rules to, to sort of confirm or deny. And that's going to be quite interesting. But on the political level, it's obvious. Um, if you're a Tory, a backbench Tory, you like a lot of the things that he says. You like the way he says them. The fact that he did go out of his way on the radio this morning to say what was said privately by the Treasury yesterday, which is a focus is on young female BME people in the country. That's what we're going to try and focus on. Is the sort of... Um, future focus to, to Sunak that actually the Tories really need um, to look beyond Johnson. I think that's quite valuable politically, but whether or not he's up to it, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not convinced yet. What I found amazing about Sunak this week was uh, creating social media banners of all the announcements from yesterday. <laughs> and rather than it saying the Treasury or the government or the Conservatives at the bottom, it just had his little signature yeah. down there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. Just on Boris, Paul, just quickly on Boris, what did you make of his care homes comments this week? Has he got an eye on the inquiry? It felt like it, didn't it? Um, it felt like he was sort of, I don't think it was off the cuff. Um, and certainly in PMQs, that wasn't off the cuff, his answer, where he basically 
came up with this bizarre uh, claim that nobody knew about asymptomatic transmission. Nobody. Um, I mean, how he thinks he can get away with that is extraordinary. And at PMQs, you know, um, that that wasn't ad libbing. He prepared that line. So you just think that's actually. Either fundamentally dishonest, or or he just thinks that maybe he's convinced himself that that is what happened at the time. I, I'm not quite sure. Obviously, well, he, was, he was probably in hospital on oxygen at the time that were actually well, doing well, the guidance. Yeah, so, yeah maybe I'm, he I'm doesn't not, know. I'm not sure how much that excuse can survive. But the the no, I think it was a real problem for him the the care homes thing because it sounded so tone deaf um, for those care home workers who had been applauding, and it's such an easy hit for Labour. He should have apologised literally within hours of saying it. And the fact that he didn't made me think, yeah, this is a bigger coming strategy of saying when that public inquiry arrives, look, the scientists were to blame. They gave us the wrong advice on locking down. They should have told us earlier that Public Health England's to blame because it fucked up over, sorry, pardon my French, it, it, it cocked up over... It's uh, not lab, a family show. Lab testing. <laughs> <laughs> Say that again. Um, uh, but, but lab Lab testing, you know, they're obviously going to blame Public Health England for some of that. Um, uh, and and uh, PPE, God knows who else they're going to blame for that. But you can see the blame being spread slowly but surely. And care homes, you know, all right, there probably were some care homes that are badly run, you know, um, just like any public service that has some sort of private procurement or even public procurement. There probably were some people who weren't doing it properly. But I think the overall tone... Um, just it felt as though that he was heading that direction public inquiry it was not me gov yeah and and cummings has hinted that 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 he's not he wasn't happy with how said will handle this crisis and said will's on his way out now we we have news of his massive payoff this week um stuart you've got a lot of friends in whitehall how's the kind of said will decision cuts the staff cummings johnson drive to reshape the civil service going down Sadly, not enough friends to give me a payoff of anything like that. Be, <laughs> I mean, I, my, my sense is that, that, that people have mixed feelings about the Sebwell thing. I think there was a uh, Sebwell had his had people who didn't like him very much. Let's put it that way across senior bits of Whitehall. I think the concentration. I think he had three jobs in one. Right, mm. that that concentration of jobs. I don't think anyone thought was a good idea. You know, there were vast times during key Brexit negotiations when he was as a national security advisor flying around the world. And I think there are a lot of people who are very antsy about that in senior parts of Whitehall. On the other hand, this is clearly a case of a, a, an unelected advisor coming in and, and getting rid of the cabinet secretary, right? That's what happened. Um, Sebel didn't quite say it yesterday, but he came pretty damn close if you stitch everything together. Um, so, I, I mean, I think there is a sense of who's next. Uh, and you know, you, you, you don't, the government doesn't have to blame the civil service in order for the future explanation of the civil service being to blame to be prepared for, because you can tell from how they're acting what they what they think the story that they want to tell is going to be. You know, they are on a mission to transform the civil service. I think that's one of the reasons, by the way, they don't want a big state response because it would rely on exactly the traditional parts of the civil service that they actually want to restructure and smash up a bit. Um, so. I think people know that there's there's big reorganisation ahead. Who's next is a question on lots of people's lips knocking around. Um, whether that is a good story for the government or, you know, it, you, you annoy the civil service at your peril because it turns out you need them every day to get everything done. And last night when I saw the leak of this letter that Liz Truss sent around 
uh, on warning that you know Britain is nowhere near, the UK is nowhere near ready for the end of transition, and there's all all these issues on the border which could be a problem. Um, that felt to me like you know this is a civil service that is prepared to score some blows against the government if the government is going to be is going to be treating them with the sort of uh, cursory respect that they're that they're showing already. On the on the just to say one thing on Rishi Sunak, which I think your your point about the branding is very interesting. I mean, I worked for a chancellor who was uh, Gordon Brown for ten years. He was chancellor, and I don't know why, but for some reason he was accused of. Um, trying to grandstand a lot. I mean, totally unfair criticisms, obviously, every single <laughs> one of them. Uh, but the, the idea that, that even Gordon Brown would have called it Gordon's plan for jobs and had, you know, brochures with his signature on it, I mean, which was a messier signature than Rishi's. <laughs> but uh, the idea that that would have been tolerable then is quite extraordinary, quite extraordinary. I think he needs to be a little bit careful here. I think, I think the, the Rishi brand machine is getting ahead of the game, not just ahead of the substance, but it's becoming a little bit provocative already. Uh, partly because he's really good at it, right? He, the man takes a good photo, and it, it turns out he's the, the, the that there's a lot of I think inside the Tory party there's quite a lot of yearning for a, a Rishi Sunak character to do well, but at some point that becomes a rivalry to Boris Johnson, and it, I think we're already at that point. Not saying that he's deliberately fueling it, but I worry that the brand machine is getting a bit out of control for him. Or, or is it one to watch? Or, or is it quite is it quite successful? Because you can see that there'd be some areas of the country that Rishi would actually be a lot more popular than than Boris would be, and that it doesn't necessarily hurt them. You know, I mean, I'm thinking in particular in Scotland, you know, where you could see yeah. you could see a lot more voters and a lot more people up there being quite keen on Rishi Sunak, where and and you know, Boris Johnson otherwise strikes them as this sort of English gentleman toff, you know, who's very privileged and Rishi Sunak gives an entirely different impression. Torres, once you once you own the good stuff, you're going to end up owning the bad stuff too, right? You got that when the Treasury starts doing things that are unpopular, then Yeah, and they're gonna have and they're gonna have uh, five, five million it. unemployed with exactly. uh, Rishi Sunak's signature on it. Exactly. Yeah. I doubt that's gonna happen. Yeah. Um, right, let's let's move on. It's time for the quiz. Uh, we kind of come on to it. It's uh, in honour of the Chancellor's big week. Uh, this is all about Rishi Sunak. Um, I've got to give some credit to that Tatler magazine profile of him um, <laughs> to help me out with some of these questions. So if you've read it, you might get some of these. <laughs> so just shout out the answer if you know it. Uh, question number one. What was Rishi Sunak's summer job when he was 18 and Preparing to go for, to Oxford University. Was he a waiter? waiter? He was a waiter, yeah. Yeah, I think Rachel was just about first there. Yeah, he was waiting tables at an Indian restaurant in Southampton. Uh, he, question number two. Uh, Rishi Sunak was best man to a senior Westminster lobby journalist. Who was James, it? James Forsyth. Yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yes, who Rachel and I should sit with. And yeah. we have no idea. Did you no. have any idea? I did not know. No, no, no. Well, and, and his uh, and his wife, James's wife, obviously is now director at the Treasury. So um, yeah, Allegra. You know, uh, yeah, jobs for them girls, maybe. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, why did David Cameron say, "If we've lost Rishi, we've lost the future of the party"? Brexit wasn't it to do with it was to do with his support for Brexit. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Sunak back leave three out of three. Wait, Rachel, you're a one woman encyclopedia. Yeah, <laughs> or, or I can read an article. <laughs> uh, 
congratulations, Rachel. Uh, unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guests for joining me. And make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels so that you can catch us every Thursday. And be sure to get your daily dose of the latest politics news by signing up to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone or follow the link in the episode notes. Uh, we'll just leave you with Tory MP Desmond Swain's ominous warning to the Chancellor in the Commons. Desmond Swain. Madam Deputy Speaker, after that package and that performance, the only reasonable thing I can think I can say to my right honourable friend is remember, O oh Caesar, that you are mortal. However... <laughs>